0: The sun rose this morning on an extremely dangerous situation, and it's getting worse.
1: Oh. Must be a day that ends in why.
2: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. To the left me, Jokers to the right Here I am Stuck in the middle with you Yep Yes, I'm stuck in the middle
1: From with Pacifica you. Radio, this is the broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA Up face. in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ And in Cottage Grove on Queso, In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX... In Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, in Round Mountain, California on KKRN, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me... From bradblog.com. Boy, howdy, is this an impossible show. Somehow, Desi Doyen, we will squeeze, what, three, four hours (laughs) into one hour today?
3: Or, as I like to say, squeezing a 10-pound show into a one-pound bag.
1: No kidding. Coming up, uh, among many other things, results from the final primary of the 2018 midterm election season... You can insert your cheers uh, right there with uh, progressives both losing and winning in New York on Thursday and many voters having trouble at the polling places, particularly in New York City. Again, as we detailed at some length on our previous broadcast, progressive financial journalist and author David Dayen will be here shortly to discuss what we should take from the results in New York and what we shouldn't, as well as what Democrats progressive and otherwise, may take away from some of the extraordinary changes that we have seen, really, for the party, thanks to its voters this year over the past several months of democracy. Yes, real, live democracy here in these United States. And I suspect he'll have some thoughts as well on this week's 10th anniversary of the 2008 global financial meltdown. Also, uh, just a few points on the latest concerning the deadly Hurricane Florence, now downgraded to Tropical Storm Florence, but still wreaking absolute havoc. Is that fair to say, Des? Oh, yes, definitely. We have been warning as much for quite a while on this show. Uh, havoc in the Carolinas, and it looks like it's going to get much worse over the next several days before things get better. Um, there have been a number of reported deaths so far Uh, In the storm with uh, dozens of rescues, I should say scores, I think, at this point of uh, rescues amid
3: high water rescues. Yes. uh,
1: Yeah. Mid storm surge as high as 10 feet in some places. Yeah, I
3: believe it's going to be a a record storm surge for areas of North Carolina for sure.
1: We have been trying to warn about the amount of water that will be dumped by this storm, which uh, as of airtime has all but stalled. It's said to be moving about three miles per hour. You can walk faster than that. Uh, so it's just sort of hanging there over North Carolina. Weather.us meteorologist Ryan Maui quantified the amount of incoming rain from the storm, predicting that it is expected to unload 10 trillion, trillion gallons of rainfall in North Carolina, enough, he notes, to fill more than 15 million olympic size swimming pools. That's the type of rain event that we are talking about um, that is going to have all manner of effects in, uh, in North and South Carolina and elsewhere in the region.
3: Oh, yeah, this stuff is not going to go away anytime soon, and it will take time for the flooding itself to pan out as well. Rivers are not expected to crest until Tuesday.
1: Also, as you may have heard on Friday, former Trump campaign chairman uh, Paul Manafort has agreed to a plea deal with special counsel Robert Mueller, agreeing to plead guilty to several felony charges and most of note to now cooperate with the investigation into Team Trump. That is not good news for, for Donald Trump by a long shot. Uh, he had previously lauded uh, Paul Manafort, for not cooperating with Mueller, even as he was found guilty last month of eight federal felony charges and faced the new trial on a bunch of other counts related to his undisclosed work for a pro-Russian Ukrainian party. Bradblog.com uh, legal analyst Ernie Canning read through the plea agreement today and uh, told me it was, quote, a total capitulation on cooperation. Our friend Marcy Wheeler over at Empty Wheel, who covers this stuff as closely as anyone, describes the deal as, quote, pardon proof. Because, among other reasons, uh, she says the forfeiture in this plea is both criminal and civil, meaning the DOJ will be able to get Manafort's $46 million, even if there is a pardon and because some of the dismissed charges are financial ones that can be uh, charged in various states, again, even if there is a pardon, Paul Manafort will still be on the hook. So a pardon will not do him much good at this point, she argues. And uh, most importantly, he will have to cooperate with Mueller uh, no matter what, a pardon or otherwise. And she speculates um, He has most likely already done so at Mm. this point, giving Mueller what he uh, most needs regarding a meeting with Russians at uh, Trump Tower and potentially another meeting that has yet to be disclosed. She sums up the entire thing this way, quote, so here's what Robert Mueller just did. He showed up the key witness to implicate the president and he paid for the entire investigation and it's only now lunchtime.
3: You meaning he paid for the investigation because that's how much money Paul Manafort is going to be He's Going to have to
1: turn over. Yep. Um, so, OK, <laughs> before we get to uh, New York here, given the literally explosive conclusion to our previous broadcast... As news broke while we were uh, on air uh, of houses suddenly on fire in several different communities north of Boston, I want to follow up with what we now know and still don't know about exactly what happened. Uh, It was indeed tied to a natural gas pipeline, as I think we had uh, speculated at the time as that news broke. Washington Post reports gas line explosions tore through several communities on Thursday, setting homes on fire, forcing evacuations in three towns and leaving at least 10 people hospitalized and one dead. Hours later, after an uh, afternoon of fiery chaos turned into a night of eerie darkness with power shut off for thousands, officials were still unsure exactly what caused the blasts. So we still are not sure what actually uh, triggered it, although we know it is tied to the gas lines. Authorities reported uh, one fatality, an 18-year-old who died after an explosion sent a chimney crashing into his car, according to AP. Um So, yeah, Yeah, the the, the
3: investigators will determine what actually did cause these gas explosions. But I did see uh, one speculation that it is possibly related to overpressurization of old gas lines made of cast iron that are already known to be leaky and prone to explosion. And the uh, Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration has been pushing gas utilities around the country for more than 10 years to replace those old pipes. It takes time and that takes money.
1: Oh, and we would hate to, you know, raise anybody's taxes to pay for these things. To, to invest keep in these,
2: infrastructure. Yeah. yeah, to
1: keep these, you know, apocalyptic scenes. I mean, uh, state police had reported receiving uh, six sixty to 100 reports of structural fires. Uh, one of the police chiefs on the scene told Western Massachusetts News that the fires were so widespread you can't even see the sky. 8,000 customers of Columbia Gas uh, in the Merrimack region were ordered to leave their homes immediately. Uh, All the power was cut off uh, to the area to prevent additional sparks and additional explosions. But Columbia Gas had announced on the same day that it was going to be upgrading those gas lines uh, in neighborhoods across the state, including the area where the explosions happened. Natural gas pipelines can explode for a number of reasons. According to Glenn Stevick, who's a mechanical engineer and a consultant at Berkeley Engineering and Research, uh, he said pipelines can be damaged during construction or they can be old, ill-maintained, and have structural flaws. So at this point, we don't know exactly what caused this horrendous event.
3: But we will find out.
1: Maybe. Hopefully. All right. Well, let's uh, get to uh, New York here before I get to my guest. Uh, as we noted on our previous broadcast, there were once again widespread reports of problems for voters at the polling place in yet another New York primary Uh, And again, related to voter registration, many voters were reporting that their names were not found on the voting rolls or that they had been directed to the wrong table and therefore it appeared that their names were not on the voting rolls or that their party affiliation was not set as democratic as they had thought that it was, finding themselves only able to vote in the Reform Party primary, which is the only New York party that allows unaffiliated voters to vote in their primaries. Over at Mother Jones, Ari Berman noted that um, a number of New Yorkers, including the son of the New York City mayor, showed up to vote and were told they were not registered. Mayor Bill de Blasio's twenty one year old son Dante showed up to vote carrying carrying he had his voting card from the Board of Elections, but his name was not on the voter rolls, and he was forced to cast a provisional ballot that they will be counted uh, if the board only if the board confirms his registration. Other New Yorkers were told that they weren't registered when they attempted to vote, including prominent journalists like Rebecca Traister of uh, New York Magazine, Lydia Polgreen of Huffington Post. And the same thing, by the way, he notes happened to Julie Ebenstein, a voting rights attorney for the ACLU who's been on this oh, show talking goodness. about voting rights oh, wow. uh, several times over the years. She had tweeted, quote, I was inexplicably removed from the voter rolls this morning and had to vote by affidavit ballot. That's a uh, what they call the provisional ballots in New York. She says, not a good look, Board of, Educa- uh, Board of uh, Elections. And then she added, if you're not on the rolls, vote by affidavit ballot. This was on uh, Election Day. And uh, she notes to call 866-OUR-VOTE which is uh, a coalition of election protection folks, and I would uh, add that if you did have trouble voting on Thursday and did not report it, A, please report it to your uh, local, uh, your county clerk, your board of elections, uh, but also let 866-OUR-VOTE know about it because they they keep a database of this stuff and uh, have been helpful over the years in identifying Problems that you know don't come to uh, come to the surface on election day itself, and then suddenly we see a pattern within their database, or helping to figure out in a case like whatever happened in New York City, ha- uh, hoping um, helping to figure out what may have gone wrong. So we don't still know exactly what happened or didn't with those registrations on Thursday. It's still going to take some time to figure out if there was an actual failure by the Board of Elections again or how much of this was simply voter confusion where they weren't actually registered uh, with the Democratic Party as they believed that they had been, or, again, that they had been directed to the wrong table at the polling place, as has proved to be the case in a number of the reported incidents on Thursday. But as uh, Ari notes, no matter the cause, it should be noted that New York has some of the worst voting laws in the country. He writes, unlike 37 states, New York has no early voting. Of course, that makes problems even worse when they occur on Election Day. He says, unlike 27 states, it requires people seeking an absentee ballot to provide ballot to provide an excuse under penalty of perjury for why they will not be present on Election Day. So no voter uh, vote by mail um Absentee voting in uh, in New York, unless you can prove that you really must vote by mail. And he says, unlike 15 states, it doesn't have Election Day registration. And also, unlike 14 states, it does not have automatic voter registration. Well, so much for progressive, Democratic New York state, right? To vote in Thursday's primaries, people had to register. This is the most amazing part to vote in the primaries, you had to register with a party, a specific party, by October 13 of 2017. Looking at the calendar, but I'm pretty sure that was last year, 11 months before the election. That is insane and, frankly, obscene. It's absurd, and it's one of the reasons that New York routinely ranks at the bottom of the country in voter turnout. Berman reports that entrenched forces in both parties are to blame for preserving the status quo. Republicans, who have been controlling the state Senate, have blocked numerous efforts to make it easier to vote, while Governor Andrew Cuomo, a Democrat, has not pushed aggressively to reform the system. Earlier this year, the legislature stripped funds for early voting from the state budget. Now, even though Democrats had enjoyed a slim majority in the state Senate, Republicans effectively had control of it. Thanks to a group of eight Democrats, eight rogue Democrats calling themselves the Independent Democratic Conference that had uh, long caucused with Republicans, giving the GOP effective control of that body of the state Senate in New York And all statewide legislation to go with it, uh, which, by and large, New York York Governor Andrew Cuomo seemed to be fine with for a number of years. And with that in mind, in Thursday's state and local primaries, the final primaries before the crucial November 6 midterm elections, some Democratic candidates and a whole bunch of democratic voters were in the mood to push back. We'll take a quick break and we will come back and talk about those results and what they all mean in New York and around the country with David Dayan. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs>
3: New
2: York to that tall skyline, I come flying in from London to your door. New York, welcome
1: back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Looking Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's upset victory over a 20-year Democratic Party U.S. House incumbent in New York's June federal primaries, where the incumbent Joe Crowley's internal polling said that she would lose that race by about 30 points gave some hopes to a number of other progressive upstarts who were running in New York's state and local primaries on Thursday. Among the progressive upstarts hoping for surprise victories were actress and activist Cynthia Nixon hoping to unseat two-term Governor Andrew Cuomo, In the Democratic gubernatorial primary, Jermaine Williams, a city councilman who represents Flatbush, Brooklyn, running for the lieutenant governor, Nod, and Fordham University law professor Zephyr Teachout, who failed to unseat Cuomo when uh, she ran against him uh, during his second term. Teachout ran on Thursday to become the next New York state attorney general, a very important role right now, particularly given the New York AG's ability to investigate and file charges against Donald Trump and his businesses and his pretend charity, which are all based in New York. All three had uh, categorized themselves as insurgent candidates in their statewide bids, hoping to mirror Ocasio-Cortez's victory in New York back in June. But alas, as results reported by New York State's optical scan computer tabulators, which tally hand-marked paper ballots across the state, none of those three progressive upstarts were able to uh, get their hoped-for upset on Thursday— The story in the uh, GOP-controlled Democratic-majority state Senate, however, is a bit brighter after Thursday's primaries. Here to explain what happened and didn't and why it all matters or doesn't is The Intercept's David Dayen, who has been covering a number of these upstart progressive Democratic primaries throughout the entire season around the country. He is, of course, the investigative financial journalist and contributing columnist at The Intercept, The New Republic, The L.A. Times. He's an investigative fellow at In These Times magazine. And uh, he's also author of the critically acclaimed Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, which was just named, by the way, by Matthew Klein of Barron's, uh, as of this week's 10th anniversary of the 2008 global financial meltdown, as one of the seven best books about that still resonating financial crisis. David Dayan, welcome back to the broadcast, sir, and congratulations on, uh, on that honor for Chain of Title.
0: Well, thank you. I think, uh, you know, a few more of these accolades and uh, I might actually get you to read it.
1: Uh, Nah. <laughs> I want to uh, get some of your thoughts <laughs> as we—I uh, sa- don't read, you know. I, I just make all this stuff I, up. You're as not one of the readers. No, yeah, I'm not. not. I'm not a reader. reader. Therefore, I'm thinking of running for president soon. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I want to get to uh, some of your thoughts, uh, speaking of, uh, th- as we celebrate the uh, massive <laughs> bank bailouts and uh, supposed reform after that uh, disaster 10 years ago. But let's start in New York where I know you had uh, some great hopes for Zephyr Teachout becoming the next attorney general. But let's start with the governor's race and Cynthia Nixon's failure to generate an Ocasio-Cortez-styled upset in New York. Cuomo easily won that race, reportedly by some 30 points. What might we take away from that, David Dayen?
0: Well, interestingly, Cynthia Nixon won about twice as many raw votes as... Zephyr Teachout did four years ago. Mm-hmm. However, she got roughly the same percentage of votes that uh, Teachout did in that 2014 race against Cuomo. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I think the takeaway is that Democrats are extremely energized. I mean, you know, you, you know as well as anyone that, that New York goes almost out of its way to get people to not vote. <laughs>
2: right. and
0: uh, And yet, uh, the turnout was was remarkable. It was about double what we saw in the 2014 midterms. People are fired up. You know, uh, uh, she was running against, I think, 20-odd million dollars from Andrew Cuomo, who had eight years of chits to cash in with uh, both voters and and, and special interests. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately was too much to overcome. And uh, it's not terribly surprising, but I think what Nixon did, uh, particularly by moving Cuomo, uh, and and we will be talking about the IDC, the Mm -hmm. the Independent Democratic Conference, later, I, I think she set the stage for that, you know, real victory on the state legislative level and uh, just by calling attention to it and actually forcing Cuomo to kind of disband it and say that it was it was kind of kind of implied that it was wrong that that really got it on the radar screen of these districts that there were these Democrats who were voting with Republicans to keep Republican control of the state Senate and
1: uh yeah it, it, yeah i mean it it's kind of mind blowing but you know i see uh a lot of uh democrats uh i don't want to say establishment or democrat or uh, centrist democrats but i see democrats uh you know who have been sort of making fun of nixon and making fun of the run but she did succeed in pushing Cuomo I think to the left and I think that had right. would you agree with that and didn't that have an effect really on the entire the entire ticket and really the entire um the political world in New York which had been so yeah. thought of as so democratic for so long but really wasn't particularly progressive
0: yeah I do and who else was going to take this up it's not like an established Lawmaker, uh, whether a congressman or uh, a state representative, no one was going to challenge Cuomo. It's a machine state. Uh, the last two times, it took pers- people from way outside mm-hmm. the the mainstream of politics to to come up for the challenge, and it was really kind of a sacrificial lamb kind of situation. But what did she do? She moved Cuomo on a number of issues. She got him to disband this IDC that was kind of, uh, you know, almost protecting Cuomo from having to make choices on policy mm-hmm. that his, his rich funders wouldn't like. And uh, she wrote, wrote, you know, raised the awareness of that to such a degree that, that the turncoat Democrats, who had been caucusing with the Republicans, six out of eight of them, Uh, were dispatched by progressive Democrats. So um, that's a lot for someone who, you know, was was an actress and an activist not but uh, a few months ago.
1: And uh, well, we we'll, we will get to that in more detail. Cuomo will uh, run against this fall. Will run against Republican Mark Molinaro, who uh, ran uncontested on the GOP side on Thursday. Though nobody actually expects him to unseat Cuomo, to my knowledge, the lieutenant governor's uh, Democratic primary race was uh, similarly contentious and uh, a bit closer ultimately. With progressive Jumaine Williams losing to incumbent. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Huckle by about uh, seven points. But I know that you and others had hoped for Zephyr Teachout uh, to win that AG's race. Uh, Why is that uh, so important? What do we know about Letitia James, who ended up pretty handily defeating Teachout and this spoiler candidate, uh, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney?
0: Right. I mean, I I don't have necessarily anything against Tish James. She was the public advocate of New York City, and and she came to office as uh, you know, a working families party candidate, a pretty progressive member uh, of of the political uh, scene in New York City. However, she 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 did line up with Andrew Cuomo, and one of the key things that a, a state attorney general in New York needs to do is go after corruption in Albany. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just seems like if if you are aligning yourself to the degree that she denied uh... you know she 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 got, went away from the working families party uh... ticket uh... which you know uh... Cuomo has a somewhat checkered history with the the working families party but but you know none of that bodes well for tish james political independence which is really what you want out of an attorney general and and teach out was Talking not just about corruption in Albany, but about corruption in the White House, mm-hmm. and and in and, and obviously Trump and the Trump organization being based in New York, uh, that gives a, a strong role for a New York Attorney General. So does the proximity of Wall Street. Uh, so does uh, the proximity of a lot of corporations. There is a, a, a sense that progressive state attorney generals, attorneys general are are, are the last line of defense really when uh, the trump administration engages in deregulation when its regulators go off the field you have this this group of democratic ags who uh, can substitute themselves can step in to protect consumers protect the environment to break up monopolies uh, what have you and so that was the promise of the Teach Out campaign. Uh, unfortunately, she came up short, and you mentioned Sean Patrick Maloney as a spoiler. So, Maloney is a, a congressman who already had, had sewed up the nomination for his, his party in, uh, in New York in an upstate seat, but he decided this run for attorney general, uh, he spent lots of money, including like transferring a million and a half dollars from his house account. Mm. Now he's got to go up back upstate and, and, and run for the house, but he, he took a million and a half dollars from his house account, uh, spent it mostly on ads in the Buffalo area and upstate, where Teachout ran very well in 2014. And if you saw one of the, the only debates of, of the race, Maloney and James were essentially ganging up on on teach-out on practically every question. So it seems to me uh, it's not a stretch that Maloney was sort of a stalking horse. You know, he he has a, a, obviously he's he's nominated the Democratic nominee and incumbent congressman Mm -hmm. and is likely to win his seat back, so it was a free shot for him. But he was just put in there, and and by the way, he raised the most money, most of it from Wall Street interests, it seems like he was placed in there to depress Teachout's upstate numbers mm. on behalf of Wall Street special interests. I mean, that that's really not much of a stretch when you look at the dynamics around that race.
1: No, and when you look at the numbers and the results around that race, uh, while uh, Letitia James, uh, as I said, pretty handily defeated Zephyr Teachout by about mm, about, about nine points. points, nine or ten points. Yeah yeah uh easily enough votes uh, went to Sean Patrick Maloney he got 25 percent of the vote uh, more than 350,000 right. uh, that would have easily or could have easily closed the gap uh, right. for and if you look Teichot. at the
0: map yeah. if you look at the map James only won Manhattan actually she lost Manhattan Teachout out won Manhattan but she only won the boroughs around Manhattan and uh, Long Island That's the only part of the state that she won. Cheech Out won practically all of northern New York, and Maloney won practically all of western New York. And Maloney and... had
1: voted with, as you reported, uh, I think over at the Intercept, Maloney had uh, voted with the Republicans uh, for some of these recent bills that gutted the uh, dodd-frank Dodd banking Frank, yep. reforms um, but f- f- focusing just uh, one more thought on on uh, James here Letitia James so though you said she may not that she's more aligned with Cuomo she may not focus on corruption in Albany which is uh, we constantly need to focus on but is she any better on uh, did she speak about uh, accountability for uh, Trump? And his family and his businesses and uh, what Zephyr Teachout has uh, been speaking about for so many years, accountability for the big Wall Street banks. Is that even on uh, James's radar, as far as you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, she did, because that's the way to win elections in 2018. (laughs) You you talk about Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we'll see what she does. I was uh, a couple of years ago on a panel with a member of uh, uh, Letitia James's staff at the New York City Public Advocate, She was mm-hmm. very eloquent. Um, she generally did uh, some, some decent stuff in New York City. We will see what she brings to the New York Attorney General's office, which is an incredibly important office,
2: yeah. uh, you know,
0: among the most important in the entire country. And so the spotlight will be on Tish James, and we'll see if she delivers.
1: Yeah, I wish I wish we could say more than we'll see, but um, let's stay positive for the moment, if uh, nothing else, because the, the biggest win, really, as uh, you noted, for progressives appears to have been in the state Senate on Thursday, uh, whereas, uh, let me quote from the New York Times here, they say, years of anger at a group of Democratic state senators who had collaborated with Republicans, Boiled over on Thursday as primary voters ousted nearly all of them in favor of challengers who called them traitors and sham progressives. The losses were not only a resounding upset for the members of the Independent Democratic Conference, or IDC, who outspent their challengers several times over, but also a sign that the progressive fervor sweeping national politics had hobbled New York's once mighty Democratic machine at least on the local level, and it goes on to describe um, some of these uh, pretty extraordinary upsets that amounted to, as you uh, noted, David Dan, six of the eight members of the so-called IDC went down on Thursday. What do you make of that? and And what can you tell me about the IDC as far as the type of legislation that they had prevented from going through in in what most people otherwise regard as one of the you know the, one of the most bluest, most democratic right. states in the nation?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, I, I mean you you talk about uh, voting rights and 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 voting systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine if you went to the polls and you voted for a Democrat in your state Senate district. And uh, it, there wasn't a change or a, or a discrepancy or a failure in the voting system. It just happens that the person you voted for who won decides, I'm going to caucus with Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what happened in eight districts in uh, New York City and New York State. And, and it, was, it was entirely engineered and orchestrated by Andrew Cuomo. I mean, this is, this is documented that, that he was very comfortable with having Republicans control the state Senate in New York, so that he didn't have to be pushed on various policies, and those policies include a Dream Act for New York, which would have been uh, included tuition assistance for people, you know, the DACA recipients who mm-hmm. came to uh, this country when they were children. Uh, it includes universal voter registration and mm-hmm. uh, a, a certain many voting rights measures. It includes perhaps advances in, in health care, taxes on, on the wealthy. Uh, you just go down the line. There's just this host of progressive legislation that was clogged in the state of New York because of Republican control of the state Senate, which was facilitated by Democrats.
1: Yeah, and to, to, uh, to and, underscore And,
0: and it's, it's yeah. confounding that this went on for so long. That, that it took until now, until, you know, more awareness was raised of it, to, to actually uh, get, get in
1: this. So, the, so to underscore this, the Democrats had the majority in the state Senate. They have the majority. It's a slim majority, but they should well, right
0: be. Well, now, right, now right now they actually don't, because Simca Felder, even though the uh, IDC broke up, Simca mm-hmm. Felder, who was, a, who was a member of the IDC said, oh, I'm just caucusing Republicans now. And he was one of the few that didn't lose last night. And Simka Felder now has the ballot lines for the Republican, Democratic, Conservative, and I think Libertarian parties in his district.
1: Good Lord. Uh, well, the the larger point I was trying to make here, though, is that uh, they had, you know, by numbers, the Democrats had a majority, uh, but they did not have control. They gave that because of this group of rogue right. Democrats, this IDC group that they, you know, that caucused with the Republicans and that gave right. Republicans control. But you say Andrew Cuomo was fine with that. The question, I guess I have, is why? E-
0: Andrew Cuomo campaigned for IDC members against progressive challengers four years ago. But, he, didn't, he, didn't bother, he didn't dare do it this year. He, he dropped them like a, a wet sock. But, but why?
1: Why? He, I mean, it's a very Democratic, a blue uh, state. It's not like he would have Andrew been in danger. Andrew
0: Cuomo yeah. is a throwback to the new Democrats, the Clinton era. And he believes that if he was forced to sign progressive legislation, it would hurt his ultimate ambition, which was the presidency. Mm. Which he thinks he's still stuck in a 1993 mindset that you can't go any further to the left than, I guess, midnight basketball <laughs> uh, laws uh, in order to win the presidency. So that was the thinking. And, and, he didn't want to upset his donors either. I mean, he didn't want to pass legislation right. that would have gotten him on the wrong side of powerful interests.
1: The um, since we got just a few minutes here, and I want to get to uh, some of your thoughts on the 10th anniversary of the uh, of of the meltdown. Uh, it's also uh, we have now. Uh, mercifully, depending on how you may see it, ended. We have come to the end of the uh, primary season uh, in, in 2018, and it seems to me that looking at what we saw in New York in the state and local primaries on Thursday night kind of mirrors a bit what we've seen across the country, where you had you know some wins for progressives, some progressive Democrats, some wins for uh, establishment and centrist Democrats, but it seems to me, at least overall, that there has been a fairly substantive move to the left by the Democratic Party, thanks to its voters, and uh, who, if anything else, have selected a much more diverse, notably much more female group of candidates to head up the party. What are your uh, quick takeaways after this, uh, at times, quite tumultuous primary season?
0: Yeah, I mean, I get uh, kind of like this whiplash uh, in terms of the mm. narrative. You know, every week it's like, oh, no, the establishment's triumphant. No, the progressives are triumphant.
2: Mm. So, you know,
0: I don't put a ton of stock in that. And and, and who you call establishment and how they've uh, been forced by circumstance because they were primary to move and shift their positions is, is malleable, too. I think you hit it when you talk about representation, diversity, uh, the number of women, who won nominations? The number of people of color who won nominations, including, you know, of states, uh, people like Andrew Gillum and 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 uh, Ben Jealous, uh, in mm-hmm. in states that aren't necessarily uh, majority mm-hmm. minority. That is really the takeaway to me of of the 2018 cycle on on the primary side is that. You know, the Democratic Party is, is one of the more diverse parties at this point in, in history that we've seen, certainly ever in America and maybe maybe elsewhere. Uh, and representation absolutely matters. The, the people who are the workhorses of the Democratic Party, women and people of color, want to see themselves represented in the leadership that is is going to carry the party forward, and uh, that uh, you know it certainly was uh, a dividing line, the marker in this primary season. If you were running, you know, an uphill battle, and you happen to be a person of color, or you were, uh, uh, or, or you were a female, uh, that that helped you uh, in in these races. And so, you know, the next step of this is to see if that representation really makes tangible differences for those communities. Mm-hmm. And, it, and if it doesn't, then there'll be new uh, people who are put in that position, I would say. But uh, that that's, that's kind of where we are.
1: It, it, on the Democratic side, it has been a fascinating exercise in democracy. It feels like an actual, real democracy uh, over Hi. these past few months, which I haven't felt from that party in a long time. Uh, the Democratic, uh, the Republican party, obviously, just for whatever reason, they think it's uh, wise, just has moved closer and closer to Donald Trump. So I guess we will find out how this all plays out in November. But very quickly, David Dayan on the uh, this past week's. 10th anniversary, so to speak, of the global financial meltdown and the mortgage crisis. Uh, you wrote about the uh, recent anonymous New York Times op-ed over at New Republic and, yeah. and about that and other reports from Bob Woodward, etc., about Trump's top lieutenants ignoring his orders by noting that that is exactly what Obama's Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner did under Obama. How Very quickly, how so?
0: Yeah, so uh, there's this history that's been told uh, for many years about Citigroup, which was uh, a bank that was really on the brink of failure when Obama came into power in January 2009. And there was an internal debate within uh, the the Obama economic team on what to do about it. And ultimately, a decision was made to at least prepare for the breakup of Citigroup, where they would uh, cleave off their, their worst-performing assets and restructure, reorganize, and downsize the, the bank. And uh, Obama signed this order and tasked his Treasury Secretary, Tim Geithner, to come up with a plan to break up Citigroup. And he did not do it. He, he simply ignored the order. Slow-walked is how it was termed. Uh, in in the first book that broke this, which was by Ron Susskind, called "Confidence Men," and there were no real consequences for that. I mean, Tim Geithner went on and continued to be Treasury Secretary. Uh, Obama certainly wasn't a bloodthirsty uh, bank retributionist or anything, so he didn't he didn't really uh, uh, reprimand I don't think Geithner in any way. But this was a resistance to a direct presidential order, and and what seems to me is that. That those doing this resistance inside the Trump administration, right, who are acting, uh, particularly in that op ed around foreign policy, are doing it on behalf of sort of foreign policy elite interests that mm-hmm. say that, you know, tariffs or, or belligerence is just not the way things are done. And it was the same kind of elite interests that Geithner was acting on behalf yeah. of when he decided that, no, I'm not going to plan to break up Citigroup. I'm going to do whatever I can to save this bank. Mm. Uh, and, and so you see a, a kind of a unanimity there of these unelected officials acting on the behest of elite interests to undermine even presidential-level orders in order to do what they wanted done.
1: I'll point folks to that story uh, headlined. He was the resistance inside the Obama administration over at New Republic. Uh, But David Matt Taibbi, who has also spent years covering this entire mess, uh, he wrote about the 10 year anniversary over at Rolling Stone this week, echoing, I think, some of. Some of the thoughts in your intercept, I'm sorry, your New Republic piece by tweeting last night that the uh, the crash was caused by companies that were too big to fail, but the bailouts made them bigger and even more systemically important. Politically, it was a permanent commitment to backstop those firms, he adds, we've barely started to see the ramifications of that decision. Uh, now, even ten years later, uh, uh, tr- true. Do you agree with uh, Taibbi's yeah. thoughts there, and uh, and how so? How have we barely started to see the ramifications of that decision these years, many years later? I
0: do. I mean, I think I think when he's talking about the ramifications, he's talking about the political ramifications, and mm. and we just saw them in 2016, in my view, that uh, when you set up this structure where those who uh, perpetrated this terrible crisis that caused millions of people to lose their jobs and their homes, and and you do whatever you can, move heaven and earth to nurse them back to health without any strings attached, without any accountability or punishment for that, uh, and then the people who were most powerfully affected by this, who were homeowners and, and, and workers, uh, who saw their lives turned upside down, you don't take the requisite urgency, the similar kind of creativity, to helping them out, uh, you generate this frustration, this anger, and you set the table for demagogues. And, mm-hmm. and that's what happened in 2016. It was uh, very much this cultural belief that the system is rigged and uh donald trump played off that even though it was it was and now we're seeing it rigged in in the favor of him and his family mm-hmm. he certainly used that that rhetoric in order to try and get elected and, and he used it pretty skillfully i would add I, uh, and so yeah that that we're only beginning to see the ramifications of that for, for,
1: uh, yeah for and certain. and it, though it uh ro- roils the um It rigs the system for the elite. I think um, there's another response, and that comes from the voters as well, in response to that. So I guess it's the continuing pendulum. We'll see how it swings this November. uh, David Dayen, investigative journalist and contributing columnist at The Intercept, New Republic and elsewhere, and author of the uh, critically acclaimed Chain of Title, which Barron's magazine describes as important and An underappreciated story. I know I underappreciated David, but I. You
0: do. I know. By not cracking it open, Uh, you
2: underappreciated
1: it. I (laughs) never underappreciate you, however, and. The uh, happy snark you bring every time you're on the broadcast. Thank you for that, sir. Uh, we will. Uh, I'll point folks, of course, to all of your stuff and your website, daviddayen.tumblr.com, and everyone should follow you on the Twitters, at Ddayen. Thanks for joining us, brother.
0: All right. Thank you, Brett.
1: Okay, quick break, and we'll come back with, uh, well, where we are on the latest with Hurricane, now Tropical Storm, Florence, and... A point of uh, concern, a point of note that uh, some folks have asked us about after our previous Green News report and a mention that I made. I'll explain all of that after we take a quick break and come back to the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non corporatized, commercial free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and Bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by Bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. Radioactive. Turn me on tonight Because I'm a radioactive. Radioactive. Welcome back to the Bradcast Brad Friedman from bradblog.com I thought we were going to talk about Florence Now we're talking about radioactivity What? Well, maybe uh, Very quickly I had uh, said earlier in the show That there was uh, dozens or scores of rescues I should have uh, actually said hundreds Uh, According to AP, Swiftwater rescue teams are assisting residents of one historic North Carolina community swamped by Hurricane Florence. New Bern spokeswoman Colleen Roberts told the Associated Press that more than 360 people had been rescued by mid-afternoon on Friday, just hours after Hurricane, now Tropical Storm Florence, uh, made landfall, uh, but that there were another 140 still waiting for help. She says crews from the city and FEMA were working with citizen volunteers to get people to dry ground. Robert says there is widespread damage in the community and power outages. In the city, but so far, no reports of death or injuries, at least in that town. There have been at least five reported deaths else- elsewhere. Uh, in the uh, early hours of Florence after landfall.
3: Now this this kind of annoys me a lot because you know it's not like they weren't warned. It's not like officials did not say get out, get out now. Storm surge is bad. And then I saw a lot of reports of people saying it's not oh. like they
1: didn't. Say, have they, they haven't been saying that for a
3: week. Exactly. At this point. And then once it was downgraded by the National Weather Service to oh it's just a category two. I'm going to shelter in place. This couldn't possibly be bad. And of course we now find out that yes it is bad and that's what they keep trying to say but it's not getting through to the people and there are a lot of meteorologists who are saying we need to perhaps refigure out the Saffir Simpson uh, hurricane intensity scale the one that gives us category one two three four five because it's not that only talks about wind speed that doesn't tell you about all the other compound threats I mean 80 percent of deaths from these hurricanes come from water not wind,
1: And that's, you know, what I had said when uh, I guess it was on a previous show when it was downgraded from a category uh, f- four down to a two or whatever it was that. Yeah, I feared that was going to make people say, oh, this isn't going to be so bad. I'll just uh, I'll, I'll just write it out.
3: And there you have it.
1: And there you have it. And so, well, we will see what happens in the coming days. But, uh, Des, as you note that, you know, most of the danger comes from. Flooding and rising water, storm surge, and so forth. Well, there is another concern, and I mentioned it sort of uh, briefly snarkily, as I do, on our uh, most recent Green News report uh, when I noted that, oh, only two of the nuclear power plants that are uh, in the path of the storm are of the exact same design as those that failed in, uh, in Fukushima. Japan, back in 2011, people uh, wrote to say, wait, what? What are those? Tell me. Tell me more. All right. Well, let me tell you more. Um, The Union of Concerned Scientists uh, wrote that uh, as the storm was coming ashore, they were warning that two potentially vulnerable coastal nuclear power stations At Brunswick, Units 1 and 2 in uh, Southport, North Carolina, and the Surrey Units 1 and 2 in Rushmore, Virginia, are in the direct path of what was then Hurricane Florence. Of concern, UCS reports that the operators of both both units have not been uh, particularly forthcoming with their uh, ways to deal with flooding of the type we are seeing, both uh, at uh, Brunswick, which is a boiling water reactor, two boiling water reactors, and at Surrey, which are two Westinghouse pressurized water reactors. But the ones at Brunwick, Brunswick, are GE Mark I. Those are nearly identical in design and construction to the Fukushima units that were destroyed in explosions and meltdowns resulting from the prolonged loss of electrical power caused by a massive earthquake and then a tsunami that struck those units back in uh, March of 2011.
3: Yeah, and remember that 45-foot tsunami Inundated the Mm -hmm. ground floor and several floors of the bottom of the Fukushima reactors. And that's what knocked out their diesel emergency generators when they lost grid power after the earthquake.
1: It was. But it was flooding. It was flooding that uh, ultimately did that one in. And uh, the concern here is that. Uh, The folks who run these two plants and the others, but particularly these two, have not publicly documented that they, in fact, successfully completed flood protection upgrades that were required by the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the aftermath of the uh, March 2011 Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. As Union of Concerned Scientists reports this week, Brunswick owner Duke Energy Feel better. Duke Energy reported to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in November of 2012 that they were that there were hundreds of missing or degraded flood barriers at the plant. The company's follow up flood hazard reevaluation report, which it sent to the NRC in March of 2015, is not publicly available. So they write, there's no way to confirm that Duke replaced or repaired the barriers in question. Not that I would not trust Duke Energy or anything. <laughs> it's the, not like they
3: haven't been implicated in uh, other problems of yes, maintenance that they didn't do.
1: Disasters and lies before the NRC's March 2017 summary assessment of Duke's 2015 flood hazard reevaluation report states that the company underestimated the potential peak flood height from storm surge at the plant's safety-related buildings, including the buildings housing the plant's two reactors. They underestimated the uh, peak flood height by nearly 8 feet. What's the storm surge we've been hearing of late? Well, it's
3: 10 uh, feet, but that's at the coast. These are inland, sort of. Sort of. Fingers crossed.
1: And finally, a March 2018 NRC flood-related document states that Duke planned to install what are called cliff-edge barriers at targeted areas on the Brunswick site one uh, one to two days before hurricane landfall. Given there is no other public information about these barriers, it is not assured that they will adequately protect the plant. And we should note that the Brunswick unit has now been shut down, uh, as expected. Thankfully, but a storm surge of nine to 13 feet is anticipated at the location of the Brunswick units. Simultaneous to the prolonged flooding from inundating rain, hurricane force winds are expected to knock out the electrical grid servicing the nuclear power station's safety systems, placing the reactors on emergency power. Though you should feel better. Duke, for their part, has claimed this week that they have backups to backups to backups to keep their power up. I hope they do. All right. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, David Dayan of The Intercept and New Republic, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, though we very much thank you for stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on your public airwaves, you folks are the only ones who do so. So thank you uh, to those who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the TheBradBlog. That's it. Angie Cairo is in for us on the next thrilling Bradcast. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.